Hello, welcome, glad you could join me this afternoon in our latest episode of Head on History. As usual, let's start off with a little bit of social media. If you are enjoying this podcast, please be sure to follow along using the hashtag Head on History. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. You can also leave a review on iTunes. Uh, I will read off of reviews every once in a while as a shout out and thanks to all the people who make this podcast possible. And of course, I do this for you, the listener. So thank you all for tuning in. I've been looking at our numbers, and they look really great. We've actually just broken several thousand listeners and downloads and subscribers, so that's awesome. We're definitely building some momentum, and that is all thanks to you history nerds out there. So let's get started this afternoon. This episode, we're going to talk about the rise of the sort of imperial Islam in the form of the Ottoman, Safavid, and Mughal empires, or at least talk about the context that gives birth to them. Last episode, we discussed what happens in the what happened during the Crusade, and that was the loss of Jerusalem eventually produced a new militarized version of the notion of jihad. That is, jihad struggle also took on a military component carried out by a professional class. Simultaneously, you had the coming of the Mongols and the fall of the Abbasid Caliphate. The end of the Caliphate meant that Islam had to be radically changed. And indeed, the historical circumstances of Islam and what happened as a result of the decline of the Abbasid Caliphate is what helped Islam survive. If you think about it, A religion that loses the heart, the cultural and intellectual heart of its world, generally falls apart. That's how most old religions die out. Uh, We see this in the ancient world, right? Is when another empire comes in and wipes out um, the indigenous people, the religion vanishes, you know? Um, But this isn't what happened to Islam, mostly thanks because Islam became rooted in scholarship. By being disconnected from the caliphate entirely, um, it was able to survive. And we saw this that with the beginning of the decline of the Abbasids, you started to see the emergence of local dynasties, these uh, what's known as the Iranian intermezzo period, these local emirs that ruled as the Samanids and the Buyids and the Ghaznavids, working alongside local scholars, ulema, who legitimized their rule. So the Khalif existed as a figurehead. When that figurehead was removed, that network of scholarship still remained. Uh, During the Seljuk dynasty that we discussed last week, we had a figure known as Nizam al-Mulk. Nizam al-Mulk was a famous vizier for the Seljuk Empire, and what he did is he funded a series, a network of schools all along the Muslim world known as madrasas. These madrasas, or schools, became the primary institution that preserved Islam. And the key word here is Preserve. There was a deep anxiety about conservation and preservation, and that was because of the threat of the Mongols, less so about the Crusades. The, the Mongols had come in, and they were about to wipe everyone out, and so the Muslim world was deeply, deeply focused on conserving and preserving the traditions that they had. We see this in the intellectual figures like Ibn Taymiyyah, who saw that the Mongols had arrived, and even though within a few generations, 
Christians. All the Mongols had converted to Islam. All four of the Mongol hordes, the Golden Horde, the White Horde, the Ilkhanet, all of it converted to Islam. He was still deeply worried that destruction of Baghdad left a sort of psychic scar on the Muslim world. And so in Ibn Taymiyyah, you see this call for jihad again, um, in many ways echoing uh, what we saw during the Crusades, a sort of defensive Islam that was Puritan, that was focused on preserving what uh, Islam truly meant and removing any factors that would let that would make Islam vulnerable to the outside. This fixation on defensiveness and purity that we see in Ibn Taymiyyah was really a reflection of the experience of losing the Bayt al-Hikmah. Whole books were, were erased, whole treaties gone, things that could no longer be found in the world anymore, and that left a real intellectual fear, a cultural fear about loss and, and uh, denigration over time. And so there is this kind of Puritan element that is, that is introduced vis-a-vis -vis people like Ibn Taymiyyah. But though that anxiety exists, it doesn't always take root. It doesn't become widespread. Ibn Taymiyyah uh, over in Damascus is a very famous, Aleppo is a very famous scholar, but it, towards the end of his life, um, falls out of favor with the, the religious leaders. That said, this is also the first time that we see Mecca and Medina become off-limits to anyone who is not Muslim. This is the first time in history, up until this time, thousands, hundreds of hundreds of years, people coexisted side by side. And while people still coexisted throughout most of the Muslim empire, Mecca and Medina became kind of sacred ground in which no one but Muslims could enter. And that, I think, is a real clear symbol of the type of anxiety about Puritanism that we see taking root. Even though uh, Ibn Taymiyyah himself, his theories don't take off, that Puritan element or the desire to conserve is reflective in a variety of intellectual movements that emerge. On one hand, you had philosophy and, Islam and Islamic mysticism, Sufism, merged together in figures like Ibn Arabi. This type of mysticism was about monism. It was kind of inaccessible. It believed that there was nothing separate or outside of God and that the entirety of the world's experiences were nothing more than a sort of mirror or reflection of inner truths, a sort of a world of images and purity uh, that existed on a different plane, and that all of this was an extension of God's will, that everything that you were experiencing was nothing more than God expanding and experiencing life. But Ibn Arabi, like Ibn Taymiyyah, wasn't his while respected, his ideas weren't widespread. The idea that really took off, all these, these kind of competing anxieties culminate in the most popular of movements, and that is the movement of Al-Ghazali. Muhammad ibn Al-Ghazali is a, a famous Sufi and a Sunni Muslim who combines the Sunni tradition, that is, the tradition we saw about the madhabs, the uh, Sharia and the Sunnah of Muhammad that is following the example of Muhammad with the inner mysticism of Sufism. In other words, he saw the kind of internal spirituality um, go hand in hand with the law. And in his mind, Sharia was less about counterculture, less about a sort of protest against the elitism of society, and much more about 
preserving society, preserving order, and ensuring the coherence and unity of the Muslim world. And we see this in, in his uh, famous book, Ahiyya Alum al-Din, The Revival of the Religious Sciences. And this becomes super important because it becomes the most widespread and popularly read book at that time period. And it tells us about really which movement takes over and captures the imagination of people. Ibn Taymiyyah is talking about a Puritan defensive Islam, not really that popular with the world. Though later on, Ibn Taymiyyah is picked up once more in the 18th century. We'll talk about that later. But in his time period, it doesn't really click. Ibn Arabi's really kind of elite, highbrow philosophical mysticism doesn't really work but al-ghazali's idea of combining the internal spirituality of sufism with the exterior ritual practice of sharia becomes super popular and accessible it's a sort of popular form of sufism that emerges in this time period and becomes widespread it's a shift from this kind of counterculture to a recognition that sharia has some relationship with the state that the state's job was to sure sharia could be practiced they weren't the enforcers of sharia and that's very clear we need to emphasize is that you don't just impose sharia but the state needs to become the custodians that they need to maintain a sort of certain social and political order so that sharia can be expressed and practiced at the local level this becomes the main form of islam this kind of fusion of sufism and sharia becomes the most popular brand of islam that spreads throughout what is essentially the Turco-Persian world. And after the collapse of the uh, Abbasid Caliphate and the Seljuk Empire and the rise of the Mongols, the Mongols really adopt this brand of Islam. And the successors to the Mongols, the three what are known as the gunpowder dynasties or the gunpowder empires, the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals are deeply inspired by this kind of fusion of mysticism and ritual law of the custodianship of the state and the practice of religion at the local popular level. Another kind of way that we can understand the popularity of this new brand of, of Sufism is through the figure of Rumi, who in the 13th century fled from his home city of Balkh in modern-day Afghanistan to Konya. And he fled to Konya and he uh, became a very famous poet. And his poetry, which often is... is uh, kind of reflected in the Western world as one of the most popular poets um, after Shakespeare. You, most Westerners, so-called Westerners, know who Rumi is. Unfortunately, this is really divorced from his Islam. Rumi is seen as this kind of ecumenical person, and certainly, without a doubt, he is... Um, reflective of the syncretic, complicated social world of the Muslims. But he's often separated from his Islam, and that's really inaccurate because he is a Muslim Sufi. That said, his poetry reflects the sort of longing for a, uh, a relationship with God, a, a sense of loss, a sense of uh, wonder, and also a sense of kind of being adrift in the world. One of his most famous poems uh, states, I searched for God amongst the Christians and on the cross, and therein I found him not. I went into the ancient temples of idolatry. No trace of him was there. I entered the mountain cave of Hira and then went so far as Kandahar, but God I found not. With set purpose I fared to the summit of Mount Caucasus and found there only Anka's habitation. Then I directed my search to the Kaaba, the resort of old and young. God was not there even. 
Turning to philosophy, I inquired about him from Ibn Sina, but found him not within his range. I fared then to the scene of the Prophet's experience of great divinity, divine manifestation, only a two-brow length distance from him, but God was not there even in that exalted court. Finally, I looked into my own heart, and there I saw him. He was nowhere else. And this kind of reflects the sort of sense of a drift the Muslims felt, that there was this loss of the caliphate, this loss of Baghdad, this destruction wrought about by the Mongol invasion. But the internalization, the spiritual interior component of Sufism merged with the sort of uh, ritual practice of the Sharia is where you could find God. You no longer needed to turn to the Khalifs. You no longer needed to turn to uh, cultural centers or holy sites, but rather you can turn inward and you can cultivate what's known as God consciousness. And this becomes very important for both Rumi and uh, Imam Ghazali. Ghazali talks about ihsan, that is perfection, that you practice your faith as if God can see you at all times, even though you cannot see him. And that God consciousness becomes the, the root of this sort of new unity. It's at this moment that Muslims truly start to experience an international moment. They go beyond the kind of regional notions of Islam that is rooted in loyalty to a khalif and instead see themselves as an ummah, as a larger diasporic community that are united vis-a-vis the madrasas who have the ulama, the scholars and the Sufi saints that could teach you the internal, internal meaning of Islam, then you have the state with its custodianship by the sultan. The, together, these two components, the state that would protect you and the madrasa that would cultivate your faith, the separation of powers between a secular authority and a religious authority, became the normative uh, socio-political hierarchy in Islam. Simultaneously, Simultaneously, you had the rise of the Perso-Turkic world. Um, the Persio-Turkic world that became popular vis-a-vis the Abbasids and the Persian revival that we saw in the Iranian intermezzo period, thanks to the Buyids and thanks to the Samanids, adopted by the Ghaznavids and the Seljuks, becomes the, the culture of the Muslim world, from the Levant in North Africa all the way to India. This linguistic, cultural reality. So Islam, the Ummah was united by Islam, while culturally they experienced a sort of Perso-Turkic world. Along with these uh, theologians and mystics, there was also the importance of history. And we see this really in the figure of Ibn Khaldun, who's really the world's first true historian and sociologist. And by which I mean there are historians that predate him. Tacitus, clearly, Herodotus, Pliny, so many figures in the ancient world. But Ibn Khaldun was the first to really focus on the science of history, of trying to understand how history actually worked. And he came up with a cyclical worldview, the idea that societies rise and fall, that societies form what are known as what is known as asabiya or social solidarity. That this social solidarity would take disparate and people and bring them together for a singular cause. And that this often happened in the margins of, of the world, in the figures of those known as the Bedouins or nomads. That they would find some form of social solidarity, band together for a singular cause, then come into a, the sedentary civilization, conquer the sedentary civilization, and settle down. 
So you had these two societies, nomadic and sedentary. The nomadic would band together with Asabiya, come in and conquer the sedentary civilization. But then that process would repeat itself. Someone else would appear on the edges of society and develop Asabiya and then replace the former nomads who had turned sedentary and that this cycle continued itself. So we can see in Ibn Khaldun a real clear kind of scientific or historical articulation of what happened with the Mongols, right? The Mongols were a nomadic people. They banded together. They overthrew the sedentary civilization. They themselves became the sedentary civilization. And then on the margins, a new people emerged that would overthrow them. So this cyclical view is a historical expression or articulation of what happened with the Mongols in the same way that Imam Ghazali Zali is the theological articulation of what happened with the Mongols, the need for preservation. And in the same way that Rumi was a poetic articulation of the experience of the Mongols, that is a desire for unity, for ummah, for an internal uh, spiritual component to Islam. All three of these reflect a desire, an attempt by Muslims to really understand their historical moment. While this is happening at the sort of intellectual level, the poetic movement, the sort of historical movement or the science of history, the theological movement, there is also a massive social change that is happening. And that is the militarization of society. When the Mongols convert to Islam, and we saw this happen quite early on with jihad, right, with the Crusades, that really starts this militarization. And we see it happen even earlier when the Abbasids start to bring in slave soldiers into society society that is known as the Mamluks and we talked about the Mamluks last time Mamluks or Ghilman this becomes a new professional class that would protect the state under the Ayyubids or Salahaddin and Imaduddin Zangi this new professional class was dedicated to jihad this became part of society's normative function, that there was a professional class, this is what I mean when I say militarization, that there is a professional military class that holds power in the state. So there is this continuation from the Crusades, and it continues under the Mongols, who themselves are a militaristic society. And so this becomes the root of the three main empires that emerge, the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals. There is this adoption of the the theological uh, perspective of Ghazali, that is the fusion of Sharia with with, uh, internal mysticism. There is that poetic expression, the uh, Rumi, the longing for a sort of spiritual component and unity of the Ummah, the idea that there is now a one Ummah that needs to be guarded and protected. There is the Um, historic experience, the idea that history repeats itself, that it's in cycles, and that um, sedentary people are overthrown by nomads. And then there's the social component, and that is the militarization of society. All of this produces the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals. So let's talk a little bit about the Ottomans. The Ottomans uh, were a Turkic people who had come to Anatolia quite early on. And so they were part of that big migration that we saw with the Seljuks and eventually the Mongols coming from the Asian steppes. They settled in um, Anatolia and some believe that their migration was either a result of the uh, influx. 
Turks or the Turkic people who were hired by the caliphate or fleeing from the Mongols themselves. And they established themselves in Anatolia um, in the 13th century. Under They were part of a single family or a tribe known as the Usmanilis that eventually become the Anatolians. Or the Ottomans, I should say, and their founder was Osman the First, of whom from whom uh, the Ottomans is named. And supposedly, uh, Osman had a dream. Osman the First was slumbering when he had this kind of prophetic moment, this dream, in which he saw the crescent moon rising up in the in the night sky over a beautiful giant tree, and the branches of this tree covered four mountains um, and four rivers. When he woke up, it was interpreted the four mountains were the Caucasus Mountains, the Atlas Mountains, the Taurus Mountains, the Hamias Mountains, and the four rivers were the Tigris, the Euphrates, the Danube, and the Nile. In other words, this became, this was supposedly, and this is likely an apocryphal story, but this dream was supposedly prophetic. That this these four mountains and four rivers were symbolic of the vast territory that the descendants of Osman would uh, conquer, that they would rule over. And this is also the moment when we see the crescent moon become associated with Islam. It's actually the Ottomans that do that. Up until this point, the crescent moon isn't a particularly big figure in the Muslim world. While there are some stories about the crescent moon, most of the Muslim flags were pretty standard. The Abbasids was just a black flag with writing on it. Um, many of you might recognize that from, from ISIS, and that's very deliberate on ISIS or Daesh's part. But Osman's uh, descendants, the Ottomans, eventually conquer much of the region. In 1530, there they go all the way up to Vienna, and they're stopped at the gates of Vienna. There's another kind of story that um, that moment supposedly gave birth to the croissant. Uh, this is an apocryphal story. Again, this is probably unlikely, and this is untrue, but it's really kind of a cool story that the Venetians who had seen uh, the flags of the Ottomans with their crescent moons as far as the eye could see, once that the, that army was defeated, wanted to celebrate that victory, and so they created these pastries in crescent moon shape, and that supposedly gave us the croissant. Also, again, unlikely it's probably not true, but it does make for a good story. And the Ottoman Empire, what's interesting, is that it's a frontier state. So it takes on that sort of militarization that, that we saw, um, or that we, we, we talked about earlier, and it makes it part of society. By 1453, they had conquered Constantinople, renamed it Istanbul, and made it the heart of their empire. And this militarization for them came in the form of the Janissaries. The Janissaries was a professional class of slave corps, a slave corps, a, a slave corps, I should say, that is a military corps uh, that was under the direct control of the sultan. This was very different from previous dynasties, right? Now we have a professional class. Again, slavery is very different in the Ottoman world than we see in the Anglo-Atlantic world. The Anglo-Atlantic world was very much focused on racial slavery and chattel slavery, um, whereas the Janissaries was, were contractual. They were often uh, parents, poor parents, that would sell their kids into the service of the Janissaries, where they received an education. Uh, they were educated in Islam and philosophy 
philosophy and writing. They became high-ranking bureaucrats and military officials. They became viziers and very powerful members of society. So there's, when we say slave troops, there is more complicated than that. While it is true, it's still slavery, and so there should there's no like defense of it. I'm just giving you a historical description on how it was different. Still slavery, and we should call that out and recognize it, but it is a kind of different social component. The Janissaries were integrated into society, whereas chattel slavery, they were uh, used for their labor. So that's the big difference. This military state, and it was a military state, was fundamentally secular, and by which I mean that there was a division between religion and politics, that the sultan was not interested um, in in dealing with, with religious matters. He left that to the ulama. Um, the ulama also produced a new class of religious scholars known as the qazi. And the qazi were uh, judges or people who would uh, enforce or interpret sharia at the local level for people. So while the ulama were kind of the, the legal scholars, the qazi would act as the sort of judge, a person that you would go to who would arbit you know, who would be the arbiter for your uh, issues, who would uh, bring in mediation and arbitration. Neither of these people had enforcement power, but people uh, obeyed them because they were connected to the state. So whereas we saw Sharia develop really as counterculture, by the time of the Ottomans, it was deeply dependent on the state. The state would use things known as waqifs or, or uh, sort of endowments by giving massive charities to build institutions like religious schools, uh, building the, to pay for scholars, to pay for qazis, to pay for uh, uh, the charity houses, to pay for um, orphanages, uh, to pay for endowments that would care, help widows. This was considered a religious obligation on behalf of the state. So the state gave money in the form of endowments, a form of charity that reflects back to the idea of the zakat, right? Giving back to the people of keeping money flowing. So the waqifs made the uh, ulama dependent on the state. The state itself, however, was relatively secular in that it was a multi-ethnic state. There was different communities that lived within the society. Different communities were known as the millet. The millet is a system in which different religious communities, specifically Eastern Orthodox, Armenian, uh, Greek Orthodox, uh, Roman Latins, would administer to themselves. They had their own laws, they had their own rules, they had their own courts that would deal with legal matters, and they were relatively autonomous within the empire, though. They still had to pledge allegiance to the sultan, they still had to be loyal members of the Ottoman Empire, but they were mostly left to their own devices. The perfect kind of example of this is Jerusalem. If you were to go to Jerusalem today, uh, especially old Jerusalem, you would see quarters, the Muslim quarter, the Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, the Greek Orthodox quarter, etc. That actual physical architectural divide is a reflection of the autonomous communities that existed within the Ottoman Empire. And that's a testament to the fact that the Ottomans really were dividing up their power. While they maintained a sort of secular military order that was rooted in the power of the Janissaries, the sort of militarization that we talked about, that religious authority was left at the local level. This was a continuation of the social structure we talked about last week week. Women also played a massive role in the Ottoman world. It's in the Ottoman world. The Ottoman, so the Ottomans continued the Turkish practice of the harem, right? So the harem is not a common Muslim 
practice. Well, it is true uh, that Muslims can marry more than one woman, and polygamy was practiced at different time periods of Islam. It was often a social act. It was never um, particularly widespread. Most Muslims didn't have more than one wife. But the but the Ottomans really relished in this, and so they had harems. Harems were something that the Turkic and the Persian people had, and less so was a common feature of Islam. Sultans had these massive harems of women, and they would marry for political reasons, they would have concubines, but the harems weren't just a place of passive, kind of languid sexuality that we often see in the Orientalist depictions. I actually wrote an article about the harems that appears in Gale's World History Book, um, that they're not actually these places of sensuality, they're a place of political power. Women would vie for control. The Valide Sultan was, would be the head of the harem, though, would be the queen mother. She had a great deal of power because it was in her pans that the training of princes happened. She would be the one who uh, would uh, give out the waqifs, the donations to various religious institutions. So the ulema and the Sufis and the Qazis were all reliant on the Valide Sultan, the the queen mother, the, the head of the harem. And the harem became the place by which marriage alliances would be made. You would determine which prince would marry which princess, which foreign dignitary would be married into the Ottoman world, and which alliances were made. The Ottomans were also a, a kind of interesting bridge to the European world. While it's true that they came right up to the gates of Vienna in 1530, they also saw them at times, they saw themselves as sort of as a European empire. And they had relationships with like the Habsburgs. Um, they interacted, they, they had economic relationships, intellectual ones, European philosophy and Muslim philosophy. Writers from both worlds would go back and forth. And there was a great deal of, of interaction and encounter. It was hardly the sort of clash of civilizations or hostile relationship that people People think. Quite the contrary, the Ottomans spent most of their times actually fighting the rival Muslim dynasty on the edge of their territory, known as the Safavids. Um, the Safavids were Shia dynasty, and so this in this division between the Ottomans and the Safavids can be seen as the final early tensions between the Shias. Because up until this point, while it's true that the Abbasids and others had, had occasionally suppressed Shia, the Shia minority, there were also times in which the Shia and the Sunni actively worked alongside one another, lived together, and really worked to create the golden age of Islam. You don't have the success of Baghdad without the Shia Buyids. So the Safavids established their empire in 1501 under a man named Shah Ismail. They draw their derivation from the Safaviya Sufi order. So they were originally Sufis in Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, that kind of region. And then they eventually come into uh, greater Iran where they establish their rule. In 1501, Shah Ismail converts to Twelver Shiism. At this point in time, most of the Iranian plateau in Greater Iran is actually Sunni. Remember, we talked about how Shiism was really kind of an elite minority religion at the time uh, because it was very mystical and related to uh, focusing on internal interpretations of the Quran. So you had to have access to an imam. Um, and so not a lot of people did. And it was not a very popular faith, but it was popularized by Shah Ismail, who not only converted to uh, Twelver Shiism, but then made it the official religion of his empire. And he converted most of the population to Shiism. 
Now, we've talked about the differences between 12er uh, Shiism, they accept 12 imams, versus Ismailism, which accepts a different number of, of imams. We'll talk about the internal divisions of Shiism in season two, but it's important to just to know that they, it becomes a Shia empire. And this is the time where we see the first real political break with Sunnism. Up until that time, remember, they intermingled and they were both key components to establishing the uh, success of the Abbasids and even, even the Seljuks. But now we see that Shah Abbas, because of his tensions, because Shah Ismail, because of his uh, tensions with the Ottoman world, wanted a clear distinction or demarcation between Shiism and Sunnism. The Ottomans would be Sunni, but we would be Shia. And so you have a propaganda campaign that is launched by Ismail in which Shias are have to reject and repudiate and curse the Rashidun. That is, the first four, the first four Khalifs, they claim that uh, Osman, Omar, and Abu Bakr are usurpers and that the only true Khalif was Ali and his descendants uh, in the Imamate. And so you see this real kind of reimagining of the past. We're up in, when we looked at Jafar al-Sadiq and Muhammad al-Baqir, at that point there was more of an internalization of Shiism, a focus on, on uh, approaching uh, the proximity of the Imam. Now we see a political break saying, no, we're completely distinct from those people that are over in Anatolia, that is the Ottomans. And in 1588, the greatest of the Safavid uh, rulers comes along, a man named Shah Abbas. Now you'll notice that the titles here are different. Neither the Ottomans nor the Safavids claim to be Khalifs. While they occasionally make pretensions to the Caliphate, the Ottomans are sultans, and the Safavids have the Shahs. Shah Abbas comes around in 1588, and he's the one that really establishes the, the religious hierarchy of the Safavids. You all have probably heard of the phrase Ayatollah, right? And it's often scary. Big bearded men with with bushy eyebrows, wearing black robes and, and white turbans, right? Um, that's supposed to be the Ayatollahs, but reality is the Ayatollah is not a a normal fixture or an ancient fixture of Shiism. It actually emerges under Shah Abbas, who imports a series of Shia scholars from outside of Iran. Remember, Iran was mostly Sunni, and these people he names Ayatollahs. Ayatollah literally means a sign from God, and the Ayatollahs would be the intermediary between the average person and the imam. So in the same way that the imam was the intermediary between God and the people, between Muhammad and uh, Muhammad, the Quran and the people, the interpreter of all that, the ayatollah would be the uh, intermediary between the imam and the average person because the imam had vanished. And these ayatollahs started the establishment or, or the foundation of what is known as the tazia. The tazia are sort of mystery plays. They're a drama that's played out to commemorate. They're morality drama plays that commemorate the Battle of Karbala. It's an emotional experience. Reliving the betrayal of the Battle of Karbala, the slaughtering of the family of the Prophet, the killing of Hussein and Hassan and this creates solidarity. It becomes the way by which the Safavids are able to promulgate Shiism. It's how the a majority Sunni population converts to Shia Islam. 
tazi'iyya, the emotional labor that it performs, is creating solidarity and converting the people to this new religion of, of Shiism that is rooted in a clerical class known as the Ayatollah. So we have the shift from mystical uh, Shiism that we saw with Muhammad al-Baqir and Jafar al-Sadiq to this new clerical Shiism rooted in the Ayatollahs. Now here's the interesting thing. Shah Abbas done fuck up. He sets up the Ayatollahs to be his friend and ally and to legitimize him by converting the people to Shiism, it would legitimize his power, right? In the same way that the ulama who started off as kind of countercultural eventually become dependent on the Ottoman state and legitimize it. The Safavids try to do the exact same experience, but it doesn't quite work. One, because there is a revolutionary component to Shiism. That is, from the very beginning, Shiism started as a sort of protest movement against the corruption and usurpation of what was seen as Ali's authority, right? And so Shiism has always had this component to it in which it's not willing to do the state's bidding. There is a kind of social justice revolutionary component to Shiism that you can't stamp out. And so the Ayatollahs, who originally start off as the greatest allies of the Shahs, end up turning on the Shahs. Having popular support vis-a-vis the Taziyas and conversion of the population, they end up being a thorn in the side of the Shahs. Every time the Shah steps out of line, the Ayatollahs are quickly quick to call him out. The Ayatollahs are quick to point out that his authority only remains on the fact so long as he makes sure and he ensures the continuation of Shiism, so long as he ensures the protection of Shiism and ensures that the Shias are able to practice their Islam following their uh, interpretations of Sharia. And so the, the Shah who starts off really hoping that the Ayatollahs will be his ally, ends up being in a really weakened position. At the same time that he's got this internal strife with the Ayatollahs, the Shahs are fighting off the Ottomans. The Ottoman-Safavid wars happened for roughly about 100 years or so, and it's a conflict between the Ottoman Empire and the Safavid Empire, and it's the first time that we start to see in the early modern world tensions between Sunni and Shiism. The Shias, the, the Safavids claim, oh, well, the Ottomans are oppressing the Shias, and so we have to fight on behalf of the Shias and fight against them. And the Ottomans are claiming, well, the Safavids are suppressing the Sunnis, and so we have to fight on behalf of all the Sunnis in the world. And so you start to see the Ummah, which had this universalist component that emerged after the Mongols, that we saw in the kind of Seljuk period and the rise of the Turco-Persian world and the Madrasas, start to splinter. And we start to see that geopolitical considerations, territorial considerations, the fight between the Ottomans and the Safavids takes on a certain theological component, right? And that's why you have like this, the Shias who are rejecting Sunnism by, by repudiating the, the uh, Rashidun Khalifs. And you have the Ottomans claiming that they are the protectors of the Sunnis and the Sunnis alone. This geopolitical configuration creates tensions between the uh, Sunni and the Shia. It's not enduring. It eventually gets exacerbated by European powers. The reality, however, is that most at most of the time, even despite this conflict, Sunnis and Shias still live side by side with one another. And they intermarry and they have no real sectarian differences. That this is just really a 
periodic moment. It's an episode in history that's not enduring, that it's not, there's not this ancient hatred between these groups, but rather there's this territorial conflict for a period of a hundred years that takes on a sort of religious dimension. And that's important to remember that even many of the kind of early uh, uh, members of the Sunni world, so we take uh, Malik and, and Shafi, who both become the founders of the madhabas of, of the Sunni world, were actually Aliyids. They were people who had supported Ali's claim. So the, what I'm trying to say is that it, the Sunni and Shiism remains complicated still, even though there is an official break now. I think we're going to end it there today. We've talked about the Ottomans. We've talked about the Safavids. Next week, we'll talk about the Mughals very briefly, and then we're going to discuss the revival of Islam. We're going to talk about the intellectual reform movements, modernism. We're going to talk about Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, and that's what you really need to know in order to understand the contemporary Middle East. So let's end it here today, and we're going to give you a couple book recommendations like I always do. So I'm only going to give two book recommendations this week uh, because next week we'll be talking a little bit more about the Ottoman revival. We've only really talked about the beginning of the Ottomans and the beginning of the Safavids. We're going to see how they interact with the Mughals. So there will be more book recommendations next week. But for the beginning of this, I recommend uh, Caroline Finkel's Osman's Dream, The History of the Ottoman Empire. She is a British historian that's based in Turkey. And it's a really good book, super comprehensive, and way more than an introduction uh, Good, good book on the on the Ottoman history. Um, I also recommend um, an introduction to Shia Islam by Mujam Mujan Momin. Uh, he himself, I believe, is a Baha'i uh, and writes mostly about Baha'ism, but it's actually a really good book on the history and evolution of Shia Islam and really kind of the doctrines of Twelver Shiism. So I recommend that book as well. Both of these taken together will help give you some further background information on what we talked about. Hopefully you'll tune in next week where we continue our discussion about the evolution and history of Islam. We'll talk about the revival movement, the modernist movement, the ends of the Ottoman world, the beginning of the modern Middle East, the the rise of, of sort of fundamentalism, Wahhabism, and all of that alongside the uh, Mughal Empire. And perhaps we'll talk a little bit about the Iranian Revolution and the rise of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Anyways, thank you for tuning in. And remember, stay smart, beautiful history nerds. Uh-huh.